Well, I've been reading a book called Earth Filled with Heaven. It's by an Anglican pastor named Aaron Damani. And the subtitle is this, Finding Life in Liturgy, Sacraments, and Other Ancient Practices of the Church. And if I had to summarize the the book, it would be to encourage believers, to encourage followers of Jesus to cultivate these practices as a way to explore what the Celts used to call, quote-unquote, thin places, places where the distance between heaven and earth decreased to the point that they touch one another. And, you know, the book, it's, it's been kind of nice and practical. It's given me some ideas of places we can delve into some of these truth, truths within our own regular worship services. But my, my favorite chapter in the book was on time. The subtitle of that chapter was Fixing Our Clocks and Calendars on Jesus Christ. How often is it that my calendar and clock do not seem fixed on Jesus, but what my Google calendar says that I'm supposed to be doing? Damani encourages churches to follow the liturgical calendar. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone asks me, how are things going? The most common response that I give, and you've probably all heard me say this, is busy. I recently explained, kind of expanded on this with a friend when I was chatting, and I said it just feels like one week just rolls right into the next, that there doesn't seem to be any break, just this weekly rhythm that doesn't let up. And before you know it, November is gone. I can't believe it's already December. 2023 is almost at an end, and it feels like it only started a couple months ago. Now, this season in the church calendar, it marks the beginning of Advent, Now, Advent is from the Latin word for arrival. It's a time of waiting, leading up to the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ on Christmas Day. It's a season of reflection. It's a season of sadness that things aren't the way they ought to be. Think of the lyrics of of that famous Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Right, this change of focus by celebrating Advent changes our calendars, and it's meant to be disruptive towards us. Instead of one week seamlessly moving into the next, it interrupts my rhythm when we change our posture with how we experience life. So through the end of the year, we're going to be using this time to acknowledge that pining, that longing that we have for God's goodness to be revealed in the world. Just like the saints of old, they waited and waited for the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus Christ on Christmas morning. So too, we've experienced Jesus' birth. We can look back 2,000 years to that, but we also are waiting. And so Advent for us is a time of waiting for his second advent, his second arrival, the time that he returns to set all things right. And so I've called this series uh, The Season of Craving because Christmas has been co-opted in many ways by our culture to be yet another you know, consumerist holiday. We're told through advertising all the things that we need, that our life is not complete until we purchase whatever particular product. And so this produces in us a craving. We have this desire to have whatever the latest gadget or good is. And so I'm encouraging us, this, this season of craving, instead of focusing on commerce, 
instead of focusing on all the stuff we want to buy or we want others to buy for us, I'm encouraging us to refocus our craving to the world around us. To think about craving like this visceral desire, right? That gut that we have for God's world to be what it ought to be. To be a place of, of hope and of peace, of joy and love, one of light and justice. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack each of those in turn. We're going to investigate what it is that we crave as we wait for Jesus to come back. And so this morning, I want us to consider our craving for hope. The hope candle. The opposite of hope is despair. If you were here the last week when uh, my friend Dave Bindewald preached, uh, if you're in despair, you might hear yourself reciting some of the expressions that he shared, right? Things will never get better, or it will always be like this. It's a feeling, despair is a feeling of being stuck, or anxious, or sad, or just feeling empty. This is a pervasive feeling in our communities. 21 million Americans, 8% of the population have been diagnosed with major depression. Numbers even higher among youth, 15% of all teenagers have been diagnosed with major depression. Why are we suffering so much as a society? What is it that's causing despair in us, that sucks our hope out of life? It could be chronic illness. Each day you find it difficult to even get out of bed because of the pain in your joints, and you long to have a pain-free day. It could be safety. Many young people are concerned about violence in their schools. Now, when I was growing up, we didn't have to deal with the regular practice of active shooter trills. Many students walk the halls of their schools today burdened with this invisible cloud of anxiety over them that at any minute someone could open fire on them and their classmates. They long for a day that they can just be kids. Maybe the short days, the gray skies of Pittsburgh winter has sapped your motivation, that you long for the energy to do simple things like washing dishes after a meal. There's so much trauma in our world. Is it any wonder that we struggle with despair? You know, I was preparing this message, and I was, I was contemplating places that I've encountered run up against trauma, and I was reminded of my time volunteering at the Naomi House in Arizona. Now, the Naomi House, it's a Native American foster care home that's just off the reservation. If you know where Winslow, Arizona is, it's uh, within half a mile of that, or half an hour of that. And, and during my tenure, when I used to work with Pitt students, I would lead more often than not a trip over their spring break to take students to this house, the Naomi house, to serve. So instead of going to the beach and partying, these students were using their, their free time to go and serve this, this um, place that really benefited from our presence there. You see, the Native American population has some of the highest rates of alcoholism and abuse. And these kids that are there, usually there's between 15 and 20 that are usually there at a time. Many of these innocent kids are subjected to violence and molestation. I mean, I could tell you story after story that would break your heart. And the one that came to mind was the one of Angelisa. As an infant, her parents were having an argument. 
And the argument got pretty heated. And in a rage and in an effort to get a jab in at her mom, Angelisa's dad picked her up and slammed the child down on the pavement. And this act of violence shattered her legs. She was in braces while we were there left her with brain damage that would hinder her developmental milestones. The child didn't do anything wrong, but yet was suffering because of someone else's wickedness. The fact that, and, and you know, Angelisa, I, I've gotten to see her grow up because she, has, she was one of the kids that was adopted by one of the house parents, and to see just the ways in which she has grown and has um, flourished in spite of the actions of her father um, is just, it's a beautiful picture. But in the face of such heartless evil in the world, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just want to close my eyes and curl up in a ball. You know, you remember when you were a kid and like, you you might be scared and you would throw the comforter over your head. You know, I just kind of want to find that like safety blanket to, to cover up and just weep. This world is not the way that it's supposed to be. I think we crave to be bathed in the light of God's hope that it's not always going to be this way. Even if our circumstances don't change, we desire to know that at least change is possible, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And so often we'll do anything to feel that way. We pray to God asking, God, give me a sign that whatever we're experiencing is temporary. Or we make foolish promises, God, if you just get me through this aisle and then fill in the blank. You know, trying to bargain with God. I'm reminded of the story of Job, the saint who suffered mightily, not because he had done anything wrong, but much like Angelisa's dad, in order to try to wound God, Satan lashes out at his child, Job. Satan took away Job's children, his economic stability, even his health. The Bible says that Job would sit in the ashes of his weeping and scraping his sores with pieces of broken pottery. Job's wife gives voice to the sentiment I believe many of us would experience if we were in his shoes. She said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Give up hope and just die. But even in the worst situations, Job did not lose his hope. We see him later in the book making the stark declaration. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the dust. If you'd open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, I want to look at another instant, instance of despair and invite us to see the promises and the hope that God provides. And as you're turning there, I want to give some background as to what's happening before we look at the passage. So Ahaz, you'll see that name in there. Ahaz was the king of Judah at the time, and this is somewhere around 730 B.C., Judah is under siege by two nations in league together. First, there was the nation of Syria. Probably heard of Syria. It's kind of similar region that the modern nation state is now. And second, the other army against Judah was Judah's distant relatives, right? The, the, the northern tribe of Israel, which is called Ephraim in the text. Now, if you look at verse 2, once they found word that these two were conspiring against them, it, you could see it says, the heart of Ahaz And the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were terrified. 
They're thinking this is the end. They're about to be wiped out. They're in the throes of despair. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to go to King Ahaz to encourage him why he should have hope. So I want to pick up at verse 10. So this is the second bout of encouragement that Isaiah is giving to Ahaz. So Isaiah 7, 10 to 16. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he, Isaiah said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Let me unpack this for us. So King Ahaz and the people are, they're nervous wrecks right now because of the threat of invasion. And Ahaz, who I should mention, was, he was a pretty wicked king. He was not righteous. Um, he was not righteous. Uh, he's confronted by Isaiah and he's invited. Isaiah says, ask for a sign. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you that this is not going to be the end. And Ahaz kind of responds with like a false piety. He's talking about like not putting the Lord to the test, but right, the, the, the dude had been putting the Lord to the test for his entire reign. And so Isaiah is kind of frustrated, like, I just said, give, ask for a sign. And so he says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. So verse 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, that probably sounds familiar. It's a messianic promise that's highlighted in, in the two birth narratives of Jesus. Matthew 1, verses 21 to 23, has the angels sharing that same sign with Joseph, citing uh, verbatim, this, this passage with the name Emmanuel. And then Matthew translates that because his, his original hearers may not have all read um, Hebrew and that it means God with us. Luke also picks up this verse. He doesn't quote the text, but it's inferred in this interaction between Mary and her visiting angel. Now, when Isaiah shared this, was he talking about Jesus when this prophecy, when the sign was stated 700 years before Jesus was born. It's complicated, right? Like, I'd say both no and yes. When Isaiah shared this statement with King Ahaz around 730 BC, he wasn't initially speaking about Jesus. It was meant to be a sign for Ahaz. Ahaz is long dead by the time Jesus comes around, but it was meant to be a symbol of hope that for him and his contemporaries, that they would, wouldn't be wiped out then and there, that there was a child, a literal child, that would be born and reach a specific developmental milestone, and before that happened, that the armies that were threatening, the people would withdraw. That's what Isaiah originally meant when he shared. But what, something we see so often in the Old Testament is that there are layers to these prophecies, that, that there is an immediate fulfillment that Isaiah was aware of, but there's also a future second messianic fulfillment that it's possible the prophet was clueless to. Through these prophecies, we see God preparing the way of Jesus to bring greater fulfillment to them. 
It, it was almost like God was writing Jesus' address, right? Like if, if you're sending out Christmas cards and, you know, you say, hey, I want to send it to, to, you know, Uncle Steve, right? You can't just write Uncle Steve on the envelope and expect it to get to him, right? You got to put the, the street number, the, the street name, the city, the state, the zip code. If they're overseas, that adds stuff that I don't even know what you need to write. Put postage on it. And so in many ways, these prophets, these prophecies about Jesus are kind of like that, those different elements of the address. It's meant to, to point to Jesus so that when he finally arrives, we're like, oh, now I get it. It all makes sense. And so seven centuries before the birth of Jesus, God gave the people a sign to give them hope, to help them overcome their despair of destruction. But then he ramps it up to provide a fulfillment that would be a symbol of the ultimate hope of the goodness and provision of God. King Ahaz and the people could experience the name of the child, right? God is with us. Names were important back then. And so the child was literally named Emmanuel. It was a testament to God's preservation of their kingdom, that God had not abandoned them. But then when this title is reapplied to Jesus, it speaks the truth on a whole different level. God is literally with us. Jesus took on human form and dwelled among his people. And so in the midst of our despair, we can look at the sign of Christ's miraculous birth and receive hope. Hope that even though there is wickedness in the world, God has not abandoned us. When things don't seem to go our way or we suffer, that God has a plan and knows what he's doing. Even though loved ones die from cancer, death no longer has the last word. When we feel like the world is piling on top of us, we can trust Jesus' words, what he says in John 16, verse 33. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the first arrival of Jesus, his first advent, gives us certainty that we can hold fast to our confidence in his second arrival, his second advent. Right? We can hold fast to that time when Jesus will return turn to restore the world to the way that it ought to be. Jesus gives us that hope, that ultimate hope, even if we're struggling to experience it in the present moment. Now, I've talked a lot about hope this morning. I've used the word a bunch. I want to pause here for a moment. I just want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Because when in the world, we say that there's a lot of things that we have hope for. But just because I say I'm, I, I'm hopeful for it doesn't, like just because I want it to be true doesn't mean that there's a chance of it happening. For example, right, I hope that the Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl this year. I mean, hey, it could happen, especially now that they fired Matt Canada, but they're an outside shot at best. Our city may really want it, but it's probably not going to happen if we're honest with ourselves. If you're a student, you might have hope that you're going to get a passing grade on your test. But, you know, you missed a couple of days of school when the material was taught. You didn't take any time to study for it. And so I'm sure a good grade would be nice, uh, but again, probably not going to happen. 
See, we often use hope as a synonym for wishful thinking. It would be really nice if it turned out this way, but I recognize more than likely disappointment's going to follow. That's not what the Bible means when it uses the word hope. Hope is something that you know is coming. You just don't know when it's going to happen. Here's an example. Christmas is coming. Now, as a kid, my favorite gift to receive was a new Lego set. As an adult, I probably wouldn't be disappointed to get Legos either. But here's the thing about Legos. They have a very particular sound to them. If you have your presents under the tree and you start shaking them, shaking those wrap packages, and you hear that very distinctive rattling of plastic pieces against it themselves, like, you know that you're getting Legos for Christmas. That's biblical hope. You may not know, like, you don't know what set you're going to get. You're not able to enjoy it yet, right? They're not in your possession until you unwrap the gift, but you know that come Christmas morning, there will be much rejoicing over Legos. That's biblical hope, something that you can take to the bank. It's just not, hasn't been fulfilled yet. So what difference does this make in our lives? How can we take this concept and make it real, rooted in us? I started by giving, I started the message by giving us a glimpse of this craving that we have for hope, that there is so much in this world that can lead us to despair. Sickness, trauma, violence, mental illness, right? The list could keep going, but the miracle of Christmas, we see a God who's not left us. We're not abandoned. Jesus took on flesh to dwell among us, to redeem us, to give us a glimpse of a greater kingdom that is coming, one in which the countless struggles that we experience today will be gone. Hope means that we're shaking that package of God's wrapped kingdom and hearing the glorious clinking of plastic pieces together, Again, metaphorically, not, not literally. It means that we trust in that kingdom, even if we're not experiencing it in the present moment. Psalm 42 and actually 43, um, they have the exact same verse 5, a little fun fact. And I want to read it for you. And as I read, imagine that these are your words. Imagine that in your despair, in your times of crisis, you were giving yourself this reminder, this pep talk. So Psalm 42 or 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist is willing themselves to put aside their despair, to approach the Lord with hope and praise, not because it's some pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking, but because he knows that the concrete truth of his God and the salvation that flows out of that. Jesus is our ultimate source of hope, right? Because our hope, your hope, my hope, joy is not in what I have done, but what Jesus has already done on our behalf. And so that nativity, the celebration of Christmas points to that. Even when we struggle to feel it, we can look at that scene and be filled with hope that God loves us, that he has not abandoned us. 
Now, in saying all that, I do want to offer an addendum because I wholly believe in the sufficiency of Jesus for our life and salvation. But I want to be very clear that this does not mean that there might be times when that struggle of despair continues to persist in your life. We're living in the time between the times where right, God has declared us to be perfect, but we also acknowledge that my lived experience might not be perfect in that moment. I am at the same time sinner and saint. I'm learning what it means to lean into that. So in the same way, yes, ultimately our hope is in Jesus, but the day-to-day when the rubber meets the road, there might be times that you struggle to experience that. And so I want to say that trusting in Jesus does not mean that you shouldn't seek out professional mental health services. I've heard too many stories of people who have felt shamed by the churches that they were going to to see a counselor, as if it's a sign of weak faith to need someone to to talk to in order to process through your emotions in life. My sister has a t-shirt that says, it's okay to have Jesus and a therapist too. And, and, And I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. If you're struggling with despair, yes, look to Jesus, but if you're continuing to be besieged by depression or if you just need help compartmentalizing your intrusive thoughts, please find a professionally licensed therapist to talk to. Yes, my hope is in Jesus, and I've seen a, a therapist every other week for the past three years, and I think I'm better for it. It's, been, it's a both and, not an either or. And I found that my time with my therapist every other week has been helpful in taking the things that I say I believe to be true and actually applying them to my life in a tangible way. I had a pastor friend once say that Jesus is wonderful, but sometimes you just need someone with skin on. And and Jesus has skin on, but he's not physically, he's, he's saying you need someone who's physically present. Sometimes you need another embodied human being to help you process and inventory things that you know up here, you know in your brain to be true, but man, you're having trouble applying it and connecting it and living it out here in your heart. And so to that end, I also want to clearly communicate that there should not be shame if you feel the need to have a prescription for your emotional and mental health, whether it's treatment for depression, anxiety. I mean, I I take meds for ADHD. We live in a broken world. On this side of paradise, we we may continue to deal with these chronic issues. I mean, I remember when I was in middle school, I was first diagnosed with ADHD, and I was a little nervous about taking Ritalin for it. That's all we had. There's all kinds of options now. And my mom helped me change my perspective. She said something to the order of, like, what if this medication What if this was the tool that helps you function more in line with the way that God intended you to function? The the way in which if all things were perfect, you you would function in in paradise. What if we saw medication not as a crutch, but something that God can work through to help bring the joy, freedom, and hope that Jesus has promised us when he walked through the earth? One other remedy that I, I want to mention before I close is for despair that we see in the scriptures is the place of prayer. About a month ago, we looked here in the service at Philippians chapter 4, and in this passage, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. But it's not just a command. Stop doing that, right? It's not just in a vacuum. He follows it up, he says, by bringing all those thoughts, 
all those intrusive thoughts, those struggles, those anxieties through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to God. And the Psalms, if you read the Psalms, you could say the Bible is written uh, kind of to us, but the Psalms are written for us. It's like it's this, the, the, these authors are writing prayers and poems of people in, in many of them are in despairing situations. They're crying out in anguish to God about their circumstances. And so prayer is not just about getting God to move on our behalf, but it also moves us. It helps give us the perspective that we see in the Psalms. Like, where are you, God, turns into, I'm going to trust the Lord. We see mourning turning into dancing. And so I hope this week that we would honest, that we could be honest about the fallenness of our world, but also see that God broke into human history to provide hope, hope that it's not always going to be this way. And so as we continue to patiently wait for his return, may we use this season of Christmas to disrupt our normal rhythms of life, to celebrate his first arrival and provide that confidence that we need to maintain that hope towards his second. So real quickly, I've got three questions. I'll put these on Facebook and the web um, to reflect on this week if you want to follow up on it. So the first is, where is the despair of the world most visible to you? When you look at it, where do you see that that despair? And why do you think whatever came to mind, why do you think that's what came to mind for you? Second is this, is the season leading up to Christmas usually a positive or negative experience for you? And why? Why? We all approach this season differently. And then lastly is this, what can you do this week to move from despair towards that path of hope? Whether that be something like prayer, therapy, talking to a trusted friend, whatever it might be, we're invited to do that. Let me pray and then we'll close with one more song. Lord, I thank you that while we look around and it doesn't take us too long to see how broken and messed up this world is, that we have, uh, you have displayed clearly that we are not alone, that we're not abandoned. And so may we look to Jesus and specifically his birth, that sign that God is with us. Jesus, you are Emmanuel. And as we recognize God with us, may that give us hope. May it revitalize hope in our lives, wherever we might be. Uh, We're all going to be at different places, Lord. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would come within us and cultivate in us that hope in Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.